0: Hey, welcome to the online ministry at Coastal Community Church. I want to thank you so much for checking us out. And we're so grateful that these sermons online are benefiting uh, your spiritual growth. Uh, But one of the things we have a deep conviction of at Coastal Community Church is that you're a part of a local church. And so uh, while we want these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, we also want to encourage you to find a local church. So if you're in our community, we'd love for you to visit us. Check us out. We're on 101 Village Avenue in Yorktown. And uh, we have three service times on Sunday morning that you can see if you can be a part of our community. Community. the service times are 8 9:30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings and so we'd love for you to visit us um, when you visit us this summer we're going to be doing a, a new series called one and uh, we're going to be taking our church body through uh, the letter of Corinthians 1 Corinthians that Paul writes a letter to the Church of Corinth and the letter is written because Paul is horrified to find out that this church is not unified together as a body um, to make Jesus Christ famous in their community and I find that interesting because we We live in a culture where I think sometimes we're uh, shocked when a church is working in unity. And so that's what we want to be a Coastal Community Church. We want to be a church that works in unity uh, so that we can better uplift the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll join us for this new series as we go through 1 Corinthians. The series is called One.
1: Coastal Church, great to see you this morning. We are one in Christ, and we are going through the summer, 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth, and this church was very fractured and disunified, and so the principles we're looking at over the course of the summer are principles that I hope, uh, uh, as followers of Jesus and at Coastal, will keep us unified so that we can... uh, be in our community and make Christ famous, right? Pull our time, talent, and treasure uh, in order to make uh, be a part of the gospel going forward. And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, so if you don't have a Bible, or if you have a Bible, I encourage you to get it out. Turn to 1 Corinthians If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is probably one in a chair near you, in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible and you can't afford one, take one of those with you, okay? We would love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. This is a great passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. It's a it's a passage that um, will create some tensions inside of you. Uh, there, it's a passage that maybe sometimes uh, g- gets us asking more questions uh, than it answers. And so this morning, we're going to unpack the idea of, do we as believers have license because we're free in Christ, or should we put Maybe some rules around our lives that are not necessarily biblical, but protect us in the journey of holiness and righteousness. And sometimes, if this goes too far, it's called legalism. So, so where are the boundaries? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this morning by asking you some questions. And I am sure, or I hope, that one of these questions will spin you up. Uh, my hope is that one of these questions are the kind of questions you're passionate about, and you have a strong opinion about this question that I will ask. These questions are, are questions that most of them, not all of them, but most of them the Bible doesn't even speak to. Uh, now, it gives us some principles, maybe, that we can apply, but there's, again, some of them, not all. There, there's no direct biblical revelation that says, man, this as a believer is is, is how we should Come down on this issue. So you ready here? We're gonna have some fun this morning. You don't have to raise your hands, okay? But I would love it if you did. Okay, so here we go. Can a Christian watch a rated R movie? Some of you are answering out loud. I love this. I love this is fantastic. Okay. Can a Christian smoke or use tobacco products? You're dying to answer. Here we go. Ready? Here's one. This one will be fun. Ready? Can a Christian use marijuana, especially in states where it's legal? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Can a Christian vote for a politician whose public stance is against something that's biblical? Like maybe they're for abortion or. Therefore, for gay marriage. Can a Christian buy a lottery ticket? I hope if you do and you win, you'll tithe at Coastal, okay, so… Some kidding aside. Okay, so here we go. Can a Christian play sports on Sunday, which is commonly known as the Lord's Day? Should a Christian family send their kids to private Christian schools, or should Christians make use of the public school system? Some of y'all, young people, you're going to go, what? Why is that even a question? Us old people that grew up in church will remember. Should a Christian read the Harry Potter series? All right? Can a Christian family celebrate Halloween? Halloween? Or can a Christian family bring a Christmas tree into their house as part of their Christmas celebration? You're like, I didn't know that was a thing. That's a thing, right? There's people who believe the Christmas tree goes back to evil roots, right? And so we shouldn't have a Christmas tree. Can a Christian invest in the stocks of companies that are making a profit off the things that the Bible would call sinful behaviors? Hmm. Remember years ago, I lived in Orlando. The Southern Baptist Church came out and decided to boycott Disney. Very fascinating because they all still owned Disney stock in their 401ks. Okay, so should a Christian family struggling with fertility problems use in vitro fertilization? See, these are the kind of questions that come at us. As a believer, as a person captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and believing that the Bible is the word of God, that the Bible sometimes doesn't speak to directly, maybe gives us principles, but these are questions, and by the way, I've, I've had almost, as a pastor, I've had almost all of these questions come to me. Hey, pastor, what do you think about... Now, some of you, one of these questions spun you up, right? And you're on the edge of your seat, and you're passionate about it. In fact, you're, as, you're, as, as I brought the question up, you were like, man, I'm going to go and make a difference. I'm going to go home and post something on Facebook. You know, like, and I get… Maybe I should… That was uncalled for. Anyway, um, but I've, got, I've got some good news for you that, that First Corinthians chapter 8 deals with these kind of questions, uh, many of these are, are not directly spoken in scripture. some are uh, Scripture gives some guiding principles that will guide our thinking but the truth be told, church, there, there are many, many areas where Christ and culture collide, and there are gray areas in our lives, in our journey with Christ, and, and, and they sometimes are a matter of conscience, sometimes they're individual decisions. And, and there's many, many, probably thousands of things that we bump up against in our lives as we walk through culture that we have to go, man, what does the Bible say about this? And what principles from the Bible can I apply to my life that would help me make a wise decision as I journey with Christ through the gospel? Now, let me give this some context, chapter 8, before we dive in, okay? Paul, if you remember, has been addressing questions. There are questions that the Corinthians had sent to him and asked him to answer. And so we've been unpacking those questions over the last couple weeks. And so this is the same thing. They have asked him a question about eating meat bought from the marketplace that had been sacrificed in temples of idolatry. Now, I know this is not something we would face much today, but the idea is that, that there were many, many pagan gods and temples in the city of Corinth, and so these, the people that worshipped these false gods would bring their sacrifice to this temple, they would sacrifice part of the meat to this false god, and then the priest of the temple would make their living off of the remaining pieces of the sacrifice. Some of the meat the priests would eat, but some of it they would take to market, and they would sell at market. Now, I read Two different commentaries that gave two different opinions about this one opinion was this meat was high quality meat and so there were believers in corinth that were buying this high quality meat for big events like weddings or when you really wanted to celebrate and wine and dine a guest if you will The other idea was, no, sometimes this meat was sold at a discount. And so the poorer Corinthians, the people, uh, these Christians in this church of Corinth were buying the the meat at a discount and it was a cheaper way to feed their family. So I don't know which it is, but either way, we know that the, the believers... In Corinth, we were buying this meat and it was creating disunity in the body. And so they write Paul and they say, Hey, Paul, we need you to answer this question for us Can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to a false God or to an idol? when it's sold in the marketplace. Now, before we jump in, okay, and by the way, this idea of culture smacking against the church, it's not uncommon for that to create disunity in the body, okay? Because people get strong opinions about what it should or shouldn't be. So let me talk briefly, because the idea here is license and legalism, all right? License and legalism. As a Christian, we have been set free in Christ, Okay? And so there is license. there is freedom, if you will, as believers. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes in the second letter to the Church of Corinth. "Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There's freedom, right? Okay, you guys aren't awake. Here we go. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, let's say it together, there is what? There's freedom, right? And so, the, 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 so there's some Corinthians going, mean, I have license. I'm free, like, the Bible doesn't speak to this. I can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Well, there's freedom. But then there's the idea of legalism. And legalism is, is adding to God's word. It's adding to God's word. It's taking something that God didn't say and acting or, or developing a culture as if God really said it. Okay? I, I had kind of this aha moment uh, uh, back in, in the wintertime when Pastor Andrew was preaching out of Genesis chapter 3 and he made one quick comment off of Genesis three three, and it was like, whoa, that's the danger of legalism. So let me, let me see if I can unpack this thought for you. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. Eve is being tempted by the tempter in the Garden of Eden to, not, to, to, take, to disobey the word of God and take in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the tempter asks her, what did God tell you? And so in Genesis chapter three, verse three, Eve answers, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, for those of you who know the book of Genesis, is that true? Yes, that's true. That's exactly what God said. But then Eve adds, neither shall you, what church? Did God say that? No, he didn't say that. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the consequence is right. Not in the touching part, but in the eating part. God did say, if you eat of that fruit, you will die. On that day, you will surely die okay? And so Eve has added to Scripture. I don't know why Eve did this, and I was kind of, this is my glorified imagination. The Bible doesn't tell us this, okay? But I would imagine, my suspicion is, again, we don't, we don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden in the perfect state. It could have been a, a month. It could have been years. It could have been millennium. We don't know, okay? And so my suspicion is, is that Adam and Eve probably got together and said, you know what? We eat of that tree. We're going to die. So, so let's add a rule to protect ourselves from what God has told us. Let's Let's just not even touch it. And maybe over time, the touching it became the word of God in their thinking, right? And, but it's not what God said. And why is that dangerous? Well, God didn't say you couldn't touch it. I'm, again, glorified imagination. Why didn't every time the tree bore fruit, you just pick it up and throw it down the river? That's another way to avoid temptation, right? Just get rid of it. But Adam and Eve had added, and Eve and mind added, neither shall you touch it. And Why is this so dangerous? I want you to think about this. Here's why legalism is so dangerous. Eve had added to what God really said. She had a false understanding of truth, and therefore, guess what? She had a false understanding of the consequences, right? So the tempter says, she says to the tempter, you should touch it, she reaches out and touches it, and what happens? What happens? Nothing. Well, what did she expect to happen? expected to die, right? And so at that moment, okay, she probably begins to deal with the idea that maybe God can't be taken at his word. See, maybe if I, if I touch it, I didn't die. Well, then I'll, surely if I eat of it, maybe I won't die. Here's the problem. God is true to his word. And God did do what God said he would do. And God's Word can be trusted. The problem was Eve had added to God's Word, whether with good intentions or bad, and by falsely adding to the Word, she had falsely added consequences that were not true, which led to skepticism, in my opinion, to what God really did say. Does that make sense? I hope I taught that well, that you can grasp, man, the danger of legalism, okay? Now, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to tell a personal testimony. I'm going to give you, um, with much fear and trembling at the end of the service, towards the end of the service, uh, I'm going to talk to you about how I make decisions on alcohol. Does that got your attention? This should be fun. Okay, here we go. Because I grew up in this culture, a very legalistic culture. So let's unpack the text, okay? Let's dive in now to the text. The first thing Paul addresses is, yes, Corinthians, you have knowledge But knowledge without love leads to pride. So when we're dealing with issues of Christ and culture, and we're dealing with, man, decisions we got to make that are cultural decisions, we may have knowledge, but the knowledge always has to be coupled with love for other people. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning, so here's their question. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that, and this is probably a quotation out of the letter that the Corinthians had sent to Paul, all of us possess knowledge. So they're saying, look, we have knowledge. And this, but Paul says this knowledge puffs up, but, uh, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here's what Paul is saying. I could preach three sermons out of these three verses, but here's what he's saying, okay? The Corinthians were mature in knowledge, but not in love. They were mature in knowledge and not in love. And we're going to see in just a moment the stuff that Paul recognizes that the Corinthians rightly knew. But what they didn't know was how to act towards one another with the knowledge that they possessed. They they were not kind, they were not considerate of others, they they were not loving others. And so, for a church to function as one, for a church to function in unity, it must have knowledge and love. Knowledge and love are essential. You can't, the Bible's very, very clear that if we have a false doctrine or false theology, it will divide a church. So we have to have knowledge, but it's got to be coupled with love for the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so, in this particular problem of should I eat meat that's sacrificed to idols or not sacrificed to idols, Paul's very clear. You guys do have proper knowledge. And here's the areas or the, or the places that you do have proper knowledge, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols. So the first thing is, is he talks about knowledge and God, and now he gets into their question. We know, and again, this is a quotation from the Corinthian letter, we know an idol has no real existence, and that there is, quotations, there is no God but one. For although there may be, So-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist." And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. By the way, verse 6, you should circle verse 6. You can do a whole study on that. Very, very important. If you remember, I talked about 1 Corinthians being probably the earliest letter written to the early churches. Okay? And right out of the gate, we see the unfolding and the unpacking of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, God is one. Jesus is one. God the Father and Jesus, okay, they are one God, but inside the God there is three. Now, we don't get the Holy Spirit teaching here. We bring that in from other verses, okay? But very early on, we get the idea of the deity of Christ and the oneness of God and the mystery of the Trinity. And so Jesus here is given uh, that all things were created through Christ. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food that eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and and no better if we do eat. So, So here's three things that the Apostle Paul says, you've got this right. Here's where your understanding is right. Number one, okay, there's one true God. You're right about that. There's only one God, these these idols, which then leads to the the second point. The idols are nothing. You you got that right. They don't mean anything. And their idols are simply made of wood or metal or whatever. And I'm sure Paul had in mind Psalm 115, right, where the Old Testament talks about idols, right? Their idols are silver and gold, the the work of human hands. Psalm 115, verse 5, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they do not see they have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They, they have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, these idols don't mean anything. You're right about that. With that said, he, gives, he hints at, and in verse chapter 10, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, he gives the appropriate attention. Yes, there's nothing to an idol, but there is evil behind the idols, Right? And we need to be attuned to that, and, and we need to live within that tension. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifices they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participants with demons. What's he saying? There is evil behind these idols. The, 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 the statue, the wood, it means nothing, but there's an evil intention that can be demonic, and, and I think my suspicion is, Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 6, where he says, man, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And so again, he commends the, the, the Corinthians, you're right, you, you, you can be right and still maybe be wrong in your application, right? You're right, there's one God, you're right, the idols mean nothing. Then he says, you're right, this food that you, from the marketplace, it's not your righteousness, the food's not your righteousness. First Corinthians 8, verse 7 and 8. However, all not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as already offered to the idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8: Food will not commend you to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Listen, your righteous standing before the God of the universe, and this is uh, I don't have, I don't, I'm going to refrain from presenting the entire gospel this morning. But, but listen, you're, one day we're just going to stand before the holy God of the universe. And, and he's, he's, we're going to be weighed, we're going to be sifted. And if you're not perfect, he's going to condemn you. You have to stand in the presence of a holy God perfect. And the only way to do that is to bow a knee to the lordship of Christ. Acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. And I've been saved by, and, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. They placed him in the grave and he rose again, authenticating his message. And when we do that, when we repent of our sin and believe in Christ, the doctrine of justification is you're declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone. So now your right standing for God has nothing to do with your doing or not doing or your behaviors. It has everything to do with the behavior of Jesus Christ, which was perfect. And it's granted to you by grace through faith. Okay, but as a believer now, the overflow of worship to God, it, because our hearts have been changed, they have made, been made alive to God by the power of the Holy Spirit, the overflow does affect our behavior. Our behavior is not our righteousness, but it's an act of worship. And so we should see in a believer the fruit of believing. And that's why Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 5, going back a couple weeks ago, says, listen, if the, if, if you see uh, the overall fruit of a person is that of an unbeliever, you need to confront them if they're claiming to be a believer. Because a believer doesn't have the consistent fruit of an unbeliever. Now, I'm going to jump off here into personal application. I may, I, I've wrestled all week if this is the right place to talk about this. Uh, if I should do it now or do it in the next point. So hopefully you'll track with my thinking and uh, you guys are the guinea pigs. If it doesn't work, I'll, I may flip it around the next service. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> I, 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 w- I want to tell my personal story and my personal thinking in regard to alcohol. Okay, I asked a bunch of questions at the beginning. I think this, this text applies to many of those questions. Um, but I want to I address specifically alcohol, because I know it's a hot-button issue in, in many churches. All right, And, and the reason I want to jump off here is because God, when I was a young man, when I was... I got saved at a young age, and I, I just started eating up the Word of God. And, and the Bible, I just read it. And, the, the, and this was one of the passages that God gave me to begin to sift through my thinking on alcohol. And, and what is a Christian's response to, to alcohol? And so I link this passage with Romans 14, because in Romans chapter 14, very similar. God is, Paul is writing the church of Rome And eating is becoming a problem, okay? Now, the the situation is a little bit different in the Church of Rome. It probably is surrounded because in the Church of Rome there were believing Jews and there were believing Gentiles. And you gotta remember, this is this huge transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So these believing Jews are struggling with the Gentiles who are probably eating uh, food that the Old Testament law forbid. And so they're struggling with that. Can I eat or can I not eat? And, And so, but I wanna couple the two. In Romans chapter 14, verse 21 Paul said this: it's, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Okay, so so I think Romans, First uh, Corinthians eight, and Romans fourteen are 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 good passages of Scripture to speak into how we make decisions of conscience in regards to alcohol. So here's my story, okay, um, and, and and how do we process biblical tensions, and and then I'm going to bring this home with my final point that I hope will highlight why I'm telling you this story. All right? I grew up in a fundamental Baptist church. So if you don't know what that means, um, I grew up in Baltimore. It, it, the church I grew up in had is very much like a Southern Baptist church, but it, it wasn't a Southern Baptist church. It was independent, and it was, it was fundamental, and, and it preached the gospel. I got saved in that church. I'm, I'm thankful for that church because the Lord led me to him. Um, it was a large church. It was a large church when churches weren't large, actually. So, uh, you know, it's just a really, really great church. But I would say this, that in their pursuit of righteousness and holiness and the desire to see the congregation pursue Christ in righteousness and holiness, they would lean towards legalism. Now, I don't think that was their intent, maybe, but, but I think it was a little bit of a blind spot and it, w- and it led to some dangers, and so like some of the legalism in that church that I grew up with, some of y'all, you guys are probably going to laugh at this, okay? Uh, <clears throat> they bought, one of the things they taught us is rock music is bad because of the drum beat, okay? And, and so, so, you know, obviously I didn't buy into that, so I asked for more drummers last week. So there we go. Um, mm-hmm. We we were not allowed to dance, and and again the 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 fence. I think the intent of that is, man, if you go to certain places, you dance a certain way. It can be sexually provocative, and as Christians, we should avoid that. And I think that's healthy and good, and we should think about that. But but there is a place for for you know King David dance before the Lord. There's a place for appropriate movement before the Lord in celebration and an honor and in praise. Okay, and, and and so that was what we we were taught. We were brought up. We couldn't go to the movies, and and so the thinking was that. Um, <clears throat> If you went to the movies, maybe you are seeing a good movie, a PG or a G movie, right? But people might not know you're coming. If you're, you're walking out in the lobby, you might run into someone else, and they may not know what movie you saw. And so that was the thinking. They, this church ran into real problems during the invention of the VCR. That threw this whole thing out the window. Like they didn't know what to do with that, right? The church I grew up in, we couldn't use playing cards, all right? We didn't use playing cards. Why not? Well, because the idea was people that use playing cards are gambling their lives away, and we want to protect you from gambling. So again, I think that's right, and that's wise, and it's good, but I don't know if playing cards is necessarily the issue. In regards to alcohol, we were essentially Again, I don't know that this was ever said, but it was implied in the culture that alcohol is a sin. You should never, never, never drink alcohol. That's how I grew up, Okay. Show of hands. How many of y'all grew up that way in regards to alcohol? Okay, good, good. So you guys know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, So here was the problem I had with that. As I began to grow in Christ, and I began to read the Bible for my own, I didn't see in the Scriptures that the Bible says we should completely avoid alcohol. I just didn't see that. And so like Eve, with a false and shame, I began to say, man, are they being, like, you begin to question the honesty of the Scriptures. If we're not honest about what the Bible says about this issue, are we going to be honest about all the things that the Scriptures teach? It's true, right? And so and so, I, I could give you a bunch of passages. Ecclesiastes 9.7, Scripture highlights alcohol is making the heart glad. Amos 9.14 talks about alcohol being a sign of blessing. John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water, as his first miracle, he turns the water into wine at a wedding of Canaan, a celebration, okay? And so... Um, <clears throat> And so, and and, and I remember uh, years ago before I came here, I was served as a youth pastor in Georgia, and I, I took my students. Really grieved my heart. I remember it very distinctly. I took my students to this evangelism conference for students, and um, this pastor gets up, man, and he is real. I mean, it was like his most fiery point is when he said, "My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he never had a sip of an alcoholic beverage in his life," and I remember thinking like. Maybe, I, I, like I don't know, we, we don't know, like why is it, and, and I, I thought about John chapter 2, and, and we know in John chapter 2 it's clear that it was alcohol, and it was the best kind of alcohol actually, because they say like what, what you would do in a wedding in Bible times, and when you were celebrating a wedding, you'd bring the good stuff out first, the most expensive stuff, and then you'd get cheap on the guests later in the meal, okay, and you bring out the cheap stuff, that's what you would do. Right, and so they're like, "Why'd you save the best for last?" Now, did Jesus turn out water into wine and let the wedding party enjoy it, and say, "No, no, I'm a teetotaler. Maybe, okay, maybe. I don't. I just don't know. I'm not going to speak to it one side or the other." But I remember sitting and thinking, like. You're not being honest with the scriptures, and I get we're at a, at a youth event, and you can teach youth, and I'm going to tell you that in a minute, not to drink. It's, it, it is sinful for a youth to drink, okay, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but you can do that without making false assumptions or te- do a false teaching and be dishonest about Christ, 1 Timothy 5, I'm doing my own study, okay? 1 Timothy 5, 23, Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. I think that has application to some of the cultural drugs that are coming on the market. Hey, is there a medicinal purpose? And we should ask those questions, okay? And so it felt to me, and here's some of the dangers of the the Christian culture I grew up in, It felt to me, I don't think it was the intent, but it felt to me that that, that this church was being dishonest with the Scriptures, like, we're so fearful that Christians are going to run around and be unrighteous and be unholy and go off the deep end that they drew false margins or boundaries that didn't need to be drawn, okay? The other thing I felt is it was a false righteousness. I felt like, as a whole, that culture leaned into, so, you want to know if you're a Christian? Well, I don't drink, that was the answer. No, your righteousness has to do with your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes? It's not what you do or don't do. What you do or don't do is an overflow of worship. I believe that the culture I grew up in sometimes thought they were being witnesses to the community. They'd go to a friend's house, right, an unbelieving friend's house. The friend would say, hey, can I get you a beer? And they'd say, I don't drink. There, I just shared the gospel with them. No, they were just being hospitable, like… <laughs> Hey, you know, can I get a Coke? However you want to do that, you know. And, and so that was the dangers, okay. And so then I went and I did my seminary work at a seminary called Reformed Theological Seminary. And I think that the Reformed camp, in regards to alcohol, had the theology right, okay. And so what we were taught there was... That when you interpret the Scriptures, you have to interpret the Scriptures as the author originally intended, okay? And so in the framework of dealing with alcohol, I felt like this camp had an accurate biblical understanding of alcohol. They taught us that the Bible does not forbid alcohol, okay? That's, and so I'm going to kind of give you, I think, are the biblical riverbanks. However, the other side of it is they taught us that underage drinking violates the scriptural mandate of Romans 13 that we submit to the government when the government does not make laws that violate the scriptures. And so if you're here this morning and you're under 21 and you're drinking, you're sinning. You're in sin. You're violating a biblical principle. And the other riverbank is drunkenness is a sin, Proverbs 20 and Ephesians 5.18. These are the riverbanks. And I felt like the Reformed camp had it right. But here's where the Reformed camp had it wrong. As I ran in this camp, it began to realize that these Reformed guys were a bunch of uh, theologically tra- changed fundamental Baptists. That's all they was. or They were, right? And That's good English. And That's all they was. And so, um, and so since that's what they was, okay… Um, what they did was they glorified, in my opinion, alcohol. And so everywhere they went, man, they were joking about alcohol. And they were, they were you know, it was, alcohol was often present when I felt like maybe it didn't need to be present. And so they were unwise in the celebration of their freedom. Okay, so, they, so one group took legalism too far. The other group, in my opinion, took license too far. Okay, and so they, they went too far. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you Sean Brown. Okay, here's where I settled on alcohol. You ready? Number one, it's a, it's a matter of conscience. I, I, I completely understand the riverbanks. The, the riverbank that alcohol is not forbidden, drunkenness is a sin, underage drinking is a sin, okay? And so, those are the riverbanks for me. For me, okay, this is applying it to Sean Brown. God has allowed me to be in leadership in His local church, and so that adds a dynamic to my life that I need to think through. Proverbs 31 says that alcohol is not to be guzzled by kings. Now, I'm not claiming to be a king, but I think the point… That'd be great. Okay, but anyway… <clears throat> I'm not claiming to be a king, but I think the point is when you're in leadership, you, you have to be sober and sober mind. You never know when you're going to have to exercise influence or exercise judgment. And so, I applied that to my life. You know what? I'm a pastor. I need. Why you go keep cutting me off? Okay, so… Uh, 1 Timothy 3, okay, the Bible tells, tells us that elders and pastors are not to be addicted to wine or not to be drunk. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to look at this next week, that when a leader leads something, they sometimes have to surrender their rights for the good of others. So, those are the things that influence my thinking as a pastor, okay? Here's what else influenced my thinking. Number 3, I'm raising teenagers. I have a soon-to-be 19-year-old. I have a soon-to-be 17-year-old. I have a, a rising middle schooler. Parents, I want to tell you something. These kids are facing incredible pressures at school to get drunk. And don't be naive if you put them in a Christian school. Okay, don't be naive. It's happening there too. Okay, and so for, for us, we decided, you know, what? We, we, we don't want that to be a temptation in our home. For underage teenagers, I, I want to be able to leave the house and know, man, there's nothing inappropriate going on in my house around alcohol. Number four, I've seen the incredible destruction around drunkenness, right? And I think the thing with drunkenness is it's hard to know when it begins, right? Is it glass number two, Four? At what point does it become drunkenness? At what point does uh, Ephesians five eighteen are we no longer controlled by the Spirit of God and we're being controlled by a different spirit, right? And, and, so, and so I think we need to be cautious around alcohol. And I've seen in the incredible destruction of drunkenness. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen, I've seen fortunes lost because of drunkenness. I've seen people lose their lives around drunkenness. I, I just think we have to be cautious as believers. And so for me... I thought, man, I think about this one of the tensions. Number five for me, there are members of this church that are recovering alcoholics. And as such, they get up every single day, and they battle with the temptation to, stay, to, to be drunk or to stay sober. And so, I, I, and so as their pastor, man, I want to honor their fight and their journey of sobriety, okay? I want to honor that journey, Number six, this is going to shock you with all that I said, but here we go, okay? I have the complete biblical freedom to have a beer or a glass of wine. I would not be violating Scripture, nor would I be violating my conscience. So those are the tensions I live between, right? Those are the things I think about. So generally, I choose not to drink. I wouldn't say never, that would be a lie, but I generally choose not to drink. Why? Because I, it just doesn't matter to me. Just cares? Who cares? I never feel like I'm missing out when I choose not to drink. And so these are my tensions and these are the things I think through and these are the tensions that I live between, which leads to my final point and then Paul's bigger picture, ready? Love sets the limits of Christian liberty or Christian license. You limit yourself because you love others. And so 1 Corinthians 8 verse 10, for if anyone sees you, Who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In other words, a mature Christian, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a mature Christian, then you should be able to think about conceptually, you should think about the truth, and you should think relationally. And by the way, notice here, Paul addresses the mature, not the immature. It's the mature Christians' responsibility to give up their license, not the immature. And by the way, the scriptures I, I could take you to 10 spots I'm running out of time. The, the scriptures make no small thing. Out of causing a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin, it's a big deal. In fact, Paul says this in First Corinthians 8:13, "Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." And by the way, stumbling is not that you disagree with me, right? Stumbling doesn't mean you disagree. You can disagree with me on certain things, and especially gray areas or are matters of conscience, but I'm not causing you to stumble. Stumbling is when your influence in your life, which wouldn't be a violation of conscience for you, leads someone else into direct rebellion or sin against God. We have to be cautious. And so I'm going to run through these really fast because i gotta, I got to finish up here. I, I stole what I'm about to share, so here's my conclusion. Some things to consider when examining matters of conscience, okay, and I stole this from John MacArthur's commentary. I thought this was really good. All right, so I want you to fill these in. You can read the ver- you can read it later, okay. Pastor Joey gave me a great book that it's at the end of your handout or somewhere on your handout. It's called Conscience: What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Okay, it's a great little book. Right about a- Pastor Joey's the king of the hundred-page book. Okay, so uh, he always said you can read it in an afternoon. So. Um, and so you can. Okay, so here it is. Seven things to consider when you're dealing with matters of conscience. Is there excess? Is what I'm doing, is it excess in my life? Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So some things are weighing us down that aren't necessarily sin, but you, you, just, you do it too much. All right, It's excess for you. Okay. Is it expedient? In other words, is it the best of things? First Corinthians six, Paul says, "All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything." So, is it the best of choices? Number three, does it emulate Christ? It's kind of the "What would Jesus do?" question. Okay. First John chapter two, verse six: Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Okay, number four, we can ask the question: Does this set the right example? And Paul talks to Timothy about this young pastor Timothy. Let no one look down on you for your youth, but set the believers the example. How in speech, and conduct, and love, and faith, and impurity? Does what I'm choosing in a gray area matter of conscience? Is setting an example? Number five, evangelism: Is it helping or is it hindering the gospel going forth through my life? Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. In other words, unbelievers, making the best use of our time. Number six, edification. Does it build other people up? Is this a matter of conscience? Is it building people up? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build others up. And finally, exaltation. Does the choice that I'm making ultimately worship the Lord? 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul concludes this whole argument. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, worship God. Bring glory to the Lord. I think these are seven helpful things that we can say when I'm making a decision that is a gray area. It's a matter of conscience. These are some things that we can think about. Your goal as a Christian is not to scoot as close to the world as possible, and still not violate the Scriptures. Your goal is to be more and more like Christ. And we need to think through that lens. And when we think through that lens, man, God honors our lives in the ordinary. Did you know next week is our, our uh, parent-child dedication, baptism, Lord's Supper? I want to
0: prepare you for that.
1: And I, I don't know how many. We have eight or ten people getting baptized over the course of the three services and, and the thing I love about baptism is these are people that are going to stand up and they're going to testify, you know what, I used to live for myself, but now I'm living for Christ. And one of the things we do at Coastal is we allow the person being baptized to choose who's going to baptize them. And we do that because we want to see other people that are influencing them. And what you're going to see next week is some parents baptizing their kids. And I love that. That's, that's a parent that said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm parenting for the glory of God in my home, and God used that to impact another person. And you're going to see some neighbors that were neighboring for the glory of God, and then get to baptize someone. You're going to see some co-workers that were co for the glory of God in the workplace. You're going to see some friends and family that were doing friends and family things for the glory of God. And so, when we serve God in the ordinary… God uses our ordinary lives to do extraordinary and eternal things. We get to be a part of spreading the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Let's not settle for lesser things. Let's set our mind on greater things. Church, let's do all things for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the tensions we live between. These these tensions require us to to cling to you and to seek you. Thank you that you don't give answers to every single cultural question that comes our way because it it makes us dig into the Word. It makes us lean into community. It makes us consider others as more important than ourselves. And in that, it shapes and molds us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this morning of worship. Thank you for your Word. I pray your blessing over this church body as they go out in the community this week that they would live, that whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, They would do all things for the glory of God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're gonna go out.